Hello, and welcome to the Spring Podcast, where socialist ideas take action. I am your host, Laura Conrad. The Spring Podcast is recorded from Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people, and is produced by the Spring Socialist Network. Okay, and here we are. This is episode two of the Spring Podcast, and we're back today with Krishna Saravanamutu, and we're going to be talking about defunding the police today. Hello, Krishna. Hi, Laura. It's, it's so great uh, to be back on the show. Thanks for having thank me. You, thank you for joining us. So I guess where we can start is um, maybe just giving a bit of a overview of what exactly do people mean when they say defund the police, and what is that movement? about right so so the the demand to defund the police actually comes out of the broader um, strategic objective of, of abolishing uh, police prisons and other carceral institutions um, and, and so um, defunding the police is actually a tactic that moves us closer towards um, the abolition of the police and, and of prisons uh, and, and and what I mean by that is that um, Whenever we're thinking about campaigns and when we're thinking about strategies and tactics, uh, we always want to ask ourselves, uh, does this particular strategy or tactic enhance the power of the police and the state, or does it diminish it? So in a situation where we're calling for defunding of the police, we're actually calling for those resources to be put into um, resources or supports that can help the community, right? So instead of spending a billion dollars like we do on police in Toronto, what if we spent a billion dollars on healthcare? Uh, what if we spent a billion dollars on food justice programs? What if we spent that money on mental health support, uh, on, on, on providing uh, access to uh, education uh, for people uh, in, in our communities? So it, it's really about sustaining uh, life as opposed to denying life. Okay, you mentioned some of the alternate places where that um, money could go. Um, are there any other main areas where um, that kind of money, those funds could go to better support public safety? Absolutely. Because I think the question always comes down to, Laura, like, what do we mean by safety, right? And, and, and whose safety? Uh, the one thing that we know over the last 150 years or so, and, and that's kind of interesting to think about, right, that uh, in our in our imagination, we think of the prison as as this perennial institution, and the police as this perennial institution that's existed from time immemorial. But it's only been around for about 150 years, um, and and so when we think about safety, the first thing we're asserting is that um, safety doesn't come from punishment. It doesn't come from the logic of of carcerality. Real safety means uh, addressing the needs of people uh, in our society. So so ensuring that people have access. Uh, to mental health care support, uh, access to good homes, access to decent work. Um, these are the things that ensure safety because what do we know? We know that when people are facing structural harms, they themselves can become harmful people. Uh, but we're not going to reduce that harm by in, in, intensifying the harm that they're that they're dealing with. I mean, most uh, you know most. Uh, 
what most people know that if you send somebody to prison, they're not going to come out uh, rehabilitated. As much as the, the criminal justice system would like to tell us that, um, they're actually going to come out more isolated, more angry, uh, and, and in some cases more sick because they're often dealing with mental health issues that are either diagnosed or undiagnosed. Can we maybe have a bit of a historical background with policing in Canada? So. Um, yeah. Maybe can you walk us through a bit of how the police uh, were formed here, the RCMP, where where did the framework for policing in Canada come from? Well, actually, um, that, that's a great question, Laura. Um, policing in Canada cannot be disassociated from the project of settler colonialism in this country, because we know that the first police force, uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, were, were designed and built to clear land uh, and, and to displace indigenous people uh, and indigenous nations that existed on this land uh, prior to the establishment of the Canadian legal state. Uh, and, and so it's no surprise uh, that, that police forces uh, in this country, uh, just like in the US, uh, often target racialized people, indigenous people, uh, black people, because this is part of the uh, state building project. Uh, it, it's not something of the past. This is part of the ongoing policy uh, of governance in this country. And, and so the police are an arm of that. They are the armed wing of that policy. And across Canada, can you tell us about some of the common um, and significant issues um, with policing in this country and um, sort of the, you know, the push for defunding um, the police and, and how those work together. Yeah, I mean, across this country, it's, it's often uh, black communities, indigenous communities and racialized communities uh, and, and poor people and, and, and the working class um, that experience the brunt of police violence. Uh, for instance, when somebody is dealing with a mental health crisis, we've seen this happen all across the country. Um, the police are often called and the police claim that they're there to provide a wellness check. But what ends up happening? We often have a racialized person, uh, a black person, an indigenous person that ends up dead, right? So this is the kind of policy that the police have when dealing with people who are going through a crisis. Um, this is not a policy that's specific to Toronto, like we saw in the case of uh, Regis kuczynski paquette This is a long-standing policy of the police, uh, partially because the police are ill-equipped to deal with crisis. The police are not equipped to deal with community. Now, that doesn't mean more training for the police. Uh, it doesn't mean uh, giving them some kind of workshop so they can be a bit more sensitive for dealing with people in crisis. What it means is actually um, reimagining how we support people uh, and, and, and how we ensure real safety for people uh, all across these lands. Can you give us a, a bit of a description of that vision, what that reimagined framework looks like? So let's say someone you know, is witnessing someone else having a mental health crisis or even a domestic dispute of some kind. What would that look like in this defunded police future that um, so many people are organizing to achieve right now? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of places that we can look to for what that would look like. I mean, of course, 
uh, black radical feminist science fiction writers, uh, intellectuals have always given us uh, a vision of what that future could look like. But, you know, we actually see, we see real concrete examples uh, of those types of models uh, in our communities. Like I know, for instance, in Toronto, uh, where there has been organized efforts by community members to support one another. And so if there is an instance of violence in a home, uh, for instance, if a child is facing harm, um, the community knows that they're going to take care of that child and they're also going to provide support to the parent um, that might be committing harm. Because often um, that parent themselves is dealing with some kind of crisis that may or may not go address and be addressed. Uh, and, and so I've seen real examples where community members have made decisions uh, in an organized way, in an organized relationship with one another, uh, where they're not going to call the police. They're going to find uh, ways to provide real support and real care for community members. And so that might also mean that, for instance, enlisting the support of counselors, trained counselors, trained social workers who live in the communities uh, who are not going to call the police as, as a first step or as, as any step, to be, uh, to be frank. Okay, and so is there a place for police um, in some shape or form to still exist in this defunded the police future? Are they um, like the backup for when uh, maybe a first responder who is now a counselor or some social worker um, or are, are they completely out of the picture? Well, we, we would argue as abolitionists that the police are a, a defunct and outdated model of, of, of trying to ensure community safety uh, and this institution that has simply not worked. Uh, we have been talking from the very inception of policing and prisons about reform. Every major reform that we have seen uh, within, for instance, prisons uh, has always only helped to enhance and bolster the role of prisons in our society. So at one point, prisons were places that punished uh, and used uh, blatant torture against prisoners. And so there was a movement against that. There was a, a movement for more humane prisons. What that did was it started to justify the existence of prisons, right? And so reform itself has always been fundamentally tied to the existence ideologically of prisons and police. Uh, what we're saying is that we have to have a bold imagination. Uh, we can't settle. We can't settle for something that is simply not working. Um, we have to be willing to actually think about new models uh, and, and alternatives um, that have uh, no real room for carcerality uh, in, in regards to how we deal with harm within our communities and how we ensure real safety. Um, so we've seen policing and the prison system, um, it's many failures. Why do you think there is such a um, struggle for so many people to wrap their head around this, you know, for people mm. who are in support of defunding or abolishing the police. Um, it, it seems very obvious and um, perhaps like, I guess I'm just trying to sort of understand why it is so hard to, to um, convince people that this this needs to be done. Right. I, I think it might be. Um, one of the reasons might be because the police uh, and, and prisons and carceral institutions have been reified in our society. Uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, these institutions uh, have, have 
been presumed to have always existed. Uh, and, and why have we presumed that these institutions have always existed? Uh, it actually has a lot to do with the logic of punishment uh, that pervades through our society. And this logic of punishment, uh, it, it almost naturalizes the idea of, of, of taking a punitive approach uh, to harm. Uh, but it's also built into the function of the state, right? So um, if there are populations within the state that the state either needs to try and exploit uh, or, or um, annihilate, uh, it can often justify that by, by bringing in criminal, criminal, um, criminal laws, right? So for instance, we know that uh, there were laws in this country that criminalized um, you know, certain types of drug use. And then what they did was they attached that drug use um, to a racial identity. So there are specific communities that use these drugs, right? So we saw that in the early 1990s uh, with the Jamaican community that was being targeted by the police. Uh, and, and they often, in the public imagination, um, created this narrative about um, people from the Jamaican community uh, you know, abusing uh, drugs like marijuana and cocaine. Uh, and what that did was that then justified increased police surveillance and harassment of those communities. Um, but, you know, I think to answer that question, we also have to look more broadly at uh, how the logic of punishment exists in everything that we think and do, right? So, and I'm not suggesting this, any of this is easy, uh, you know, so for instance, if, if my friend has committed harm against me, my natural impulse is to want to commit harm back. So part of this also means that we have to rethink our own approach um, to how we deal with a conflict, right? Does it mean that we immediately jump to the um, to, to, to the eye for an eye uh, approach? Or do we say, hey, you know what? Actually, if I lose my, my eye and you lose your eye, none of us are going to be able to see. So we need a vision for something different. And what would need to happen then to create that shift required in the public's imagination towards a police-free future? Well, I think, I think a lot of it has already been happening, right? For decades and decades now, uh, abolitionists have been um, talking about alternatives to prisons and to police. And a lot of that has to do, again, with where we invest our public resources, right? Uh, imagine instead of putting money into prisons, uh, you know, the Ford government here in Ontario actually just put $500 million into building new prisons. What if we put that money into paid sick days? Right. I mean, what if we supported community members who are on the front lines of this pandemic and gave them 10 paid sick days um, that employers would actually be forced to pay for? Uh, so that's an example of, of um, you know, what that alternative can look like and also an example of how people have been imagining these situations for decades. Uh, we saw the height of this entering the political mainstream once again during the protests um, that happened this summer against the killings of George Floyd. Uh, and, and, and Brianna Taylor and Regis Kuczynski Paquette, uh, where people were starting to actually question once again in a mainstream way uh, what the actual function of police are and what the actual function of prisons are. Uh, and, 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 and there's been, I think, in many ways, uh, a major hurdle that's been overcome because across the board, even in mainstream media outlets, uh, in, in, in places of government, people were actually having debates about defunding the police. And so I actually think we're one step closer. Uh, we are closer to victory than we've ever been before. So maybe can you share a little bit across Canada what's going on with um, defunding the police movements? I know that in Hamilton, there's been some very significant turnout 
in terms of protests against the yeah. police. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, from coast to coast, there are abolitionists who are organizing. Uh, you know, we we work here in Toronto very closely with the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project. We also work with the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project based in Ottawa. Uh, those two organizations are part of an abolition coalition, a national abolition coalition uh, that actually, uh, for instance, uh, just a few months ago, organized the National Day of Action, where communities from every part of this country uh, hit the streets, protested, organized in their communities, did education work to actually talk about, hey, what would this look like if we were to put money into actually uh, supporting communities um, that are facing the brunt of COVID, right? One of the things that they were able to do was actually point out that the crisis, this unprecedented crisis that we are experiencing, uh, in many ways has given way to the all too familiar crisis of racism. Uh, the crisis where it's black and brown people in our communities who are forced to be on the front line, uh, who are forced uh, to, to go to work and risk getting sick and forced to go to work even when they are sick. Uh, and if they decide that they can't go to work, then they face the potential of ending up on the streets because they're evicted or they can't put food on the table. Uh, and, and so what abolition groups across this country have been doing is, is raising the issue of, 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 of structural racism that exists in our society uh, and looking at that specifically within the context that we find ourselves in right now. Can you um, maybe estimate or uh, imagine wh where, how much more time will it take for Canada to um, arrive at a police-free uh, future? Laura, I think we're already on our way. Yeah. You know, I honestly believe that. I really believe that because uh, the last time we saw uh, abolition entering the mainstream, uh, the way we're seeing it now was in either the 60s or the 70s, uh, when, when there was major, major movements emerging that were questioning the validity of prisons. Uh, and, and, and we saw that um, that same energy and that same impulse um, entering a new wave, a new chapter uh, over the, during the insurgency that we saw during the summer. And so now there is a whole new generation of people, uh, both young and old, who are really questioning the validity of prisons uh, in, in, a, in a concrete way. They're questioning what policy sense does this make? How does it make sense to take people who are experiencing harm and to lock them up inside prisons? How does it make sense for police to target and kill people that are going um, through crisis. Uh, this doesn't make any sense. This, this, you know, how many more times are we going to say enough is enough? How many more names are we going to list of black people, indigenous people, and racialized people that have been murdered by the police? I think there's a mainstream reckoning right now uh, where there's a real public debate about the um, utility or even the purpose or the function of the police. And so I think, I really do believe that we are so much closer today um, to, to abolishing the prisons and the police uh, than we have been for a very long time. The other thing I'll add is I, I take inspiration from the words of Angela Davis. She said that we have to believe that we're already in the world that we're fighting for. And I really do believe that. And the reason I believe that is not because uh, I'm sitting here dreaming of that world. It's because people like you and I uh, and socialists and abolitionists uh, and progressive people, working class people all across this country are putting in that work. We are organizing within our communities and we're building the world that we want to see. That's right. Um, do you have any specific calls to action uh, that someone listening 
to the podcast today could take either to further educate themselves or take concrete action to uh, defund the police wherever they live? Well, definitely, I, I do believe that knowledge is, is one of the greatest um, strengths that we can have in, in, in our movement work. Uh, and our comrades in organizations like Black Lives Matter Canada have published um, numerous articles. Uh, they have a book out on this question uh, called Until We Are Free. I would strongly suggest that people check out that book. Uh, I would also strongly suggest that people check out the work of abolitionist organizations like the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project. Uh, get involved with TPRP. They are doing incredible work building our communities right now in the here and now. Uh, and they're also doing the work of political education. Uh, so, so those are two things that I would suggest that people can do um, in terms of concrete action. Wonderful. If a listener wanted to get in touch with you, would you be willing to give a contact email or oh, social yeah. media they can follow you on? How oh, sure. Get a, um, get a hold of me. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, just my first and last name, Krishna Saravanamuthu. Um, and uh, you should also follow organizations like Spring on Instagram. Uh, and, uh, you know, any work that I do, I do as part of a community, right? Uh, and so any success that we have or any victories that we have, we achieve together uh, in an organized relationship with one another. Uh, also check out, uh, check out the work uh, or the Instagram profiles of Black Lives Matter Canada. Uh, check out the work of our comrades like Sandy Hudson. Check out the work of people like Rajan Hoylet from the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project. Um, these are all people that people should be getting in touch with. Wonderful. Well, again, Krishna, thank you so much for your time, for sharing the space here with me today and sharing your insight uh, with our listeners. Laura, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for all this great work that you're doing. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Spring Podcast. Our researcher is Sarah Saheed and our audio engineer is Brian the Vinayaham. To learn more about Spring, please visit our website at springmag.ca. We welcome your feedback. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes, you can send us an email at info at springmag.ca.